0: All right, guys, today I wanna teach you uh, from one verse in uh, the book of Titus. We'll put it up on the screen for you, but you can also turn there in your Bible so you can have it uh, to reference for the entire uh, session today. Uh, But Uh, Titus uh, chapter two, uh, verse two, I'm gonna back up to verse one where Paul talks to an overseeing pastor named Titus. He's kind of giving him directions. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then here's our verse for today. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So Lord, we come to you today, Uh, whether we're older men right now or not, we all want these attributes right now in our lives, but we also want to become these things by your grace, by the power of your spirit as time moves by in our lives. So we pray, Lord, that you do this in us, strengthen us with this text today in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Okay, like I said, the book of Titus. It is Paul's instruction to a church leader named Titus, Uh, and it's really about how to organize and develop uh, the brand new church uh, for for Titus on the island of Crete, Uh, but of course it has application to our day as well. In in the first chapter of Titus, uh, Paul gives details on who is qualified or who to install into pastoral positions throughout the island of Crete. And then this second chapter, he goes on to uh, tell Titus what to encourage in uh, all the men and in all the women of the church. And uh, we didn't read the verses after verse two, but he goes on to talk to or about the older uh, women. Uh, then the younger women, and then last, the young uh, men. Uh, Every one of us, of course, goes from the process of shifting from young to old, but the way that Paul categorizes it, in his mind, there's four quadrants. You've got men and women, and they are either young or old. And I think that Paul starts with the older men uh, for a reason. This is strategic. Older men can be an incredible blessing to the body of Christ. Uh, If if an older man is submitted to Jesus, he can make a major impact uh, on into his latter years of life. He can experience some great fruit in those latter years. Uh, The Bible is filled with examples of this. Older men who greatly blessed the people in their lives and the world Uh, In their latter years, Uh, Caleb and Joshua, for instance, they they trusted God on into their 80s and they led the people of Israel into victorious battle in their old age. Uh, Noah built an ark for the saving of his household. It took him a very long time to build that ark so that he was an old man by the time it was completed. Abraham and the patriarchs did some of their finest work and greatest exploits of faith in their old age. And Paul himself served Jesus all the way to his death Uh, as a relatively old man. He accomplished much even in and especially in those latter years. And just as Moses's most fruitful years were from age 80 to 120, the final third of his life, so to speak, I think that it'd be good for us to Desire, strive, long for the final third of our lives to be the most impactful season of our lives. Uh, Maybe that's a good way to think about life. If you're just sort of thinking in broad figures about the timeline or the trajectory of your life, uh, maybe there's the first third of life, kind of that part where you you grow up, you become a man, maybe from birth to somewhere in your mid-20s or your early 30s. It's the time where you're, you're growing into adulthood. And then there's that middle third of your life, maybe your mid-20s or early 30s on into your late 40s or mid-50s or even your early 60s where you're growing, you're learning, you're laying down track, you're, you're discovering who God is, you're growing in him, you're gaining mastery over the flesh and you're being sanctified. And then perhaps there's that final third of life, maybe from your mid-50s or early 60s on until the day that you go home to be with the Lord. Uh, But older men are not only mentioned here first because they're meant to be a blessing to everyone else, pillars that the rest of the church is to lean on. But I think they're mentioned here because an others-centered and mature life is a life of blessing, not just to other people, but to you as the individual. In other words, if we become or are what Paul describes in this verse, we will be a blessing to other people, but we will also be incredibly and infinitely blessed because our lives will have values, significance, and meaning. One way that we'll be blessed is that the mature Christian who spends themselves on God's kingdom is saved from the spirit of Ecclesiastes. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you discover a person who in his old age feels God is not involved, everything is getting worse, there is no hope, it is all vain. But the man of God, the man of the gospel, continues to believe in the power of the gospel and continues to have hope and bears fruit till the day that he dies. Okay, the question though that we should ask this morning is who is the older man that Paul envisions? You know, what age is he specifically uh, talking about? I mean, older and younger are such relative terms, right? I mean, I remember Manny talked about when I first came here uh, and joined our staff so many years ago, Uh, he's, I think, three years older than me, and I thought he was ancient, you know? I was like 21 years old, and he was 25 or something, and I thought, oh my gosh, he's such an old guy, you know? And in my mid-20s, you know, someone who is 45 years old, like, that's a really old man, and now I'm not so sure that that's (laughs) really old. And then you look in the Bible, and we've got a really wide range to work with. You know, Jesus died approximately at age 33. Uh, Methuselah, on the other end of the spectrum, lived to be 969 years old in the book of Genesis. So he was definitely old. I know I can put Methuselah in that category. But who, who is Paul talking about? Well, the term that Paul used for older man in this verse yeah, it's actually a term that he used when he wrote his letter to Philemon to describe himself. And we know that he was around 60 years of age at that point in his life. Uh, John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, also used this term of himself when he objected to uh, the angel Gabriel telling him that he would have a child. He said, I'm an old man. All right, so he viewed Uh, this being a stage of life where you're no longer having children. You're you're past that point in life, at the very least. Uh, But the term is not only found in the Bible. It's found outside of the Bible, in other ancient Greek literature. Philo and Hippocrates, uh, for for instance, use these words to describe the sixth of seven stages of life. Uh, And they identified, identified it as age 50 to age 56. Okay, so I think taken together, it seems reasonable to say that this is a stage that we enter into in somewhere around our mid-50s or our early 60s, all right? So, so why would I teach this verse today? This is not a men's conference exclusively for older men, you know? There are plenty of us who would say, well, okay, I'm not in that age range, I'm not in that category, so why would I choose to take a whole session to focus on uh, this verse. Well, maybe part of it is that I had learned that I was gonna have the 8.30 a.m. session and I knew none of the young guys would really be awake yet. But the older men, you guys have been up for like seven hours already, you know? You're ready to go and you'll probably be asleep for the other sessions, so. That's not the reason. I think the reason I wanted to teach this is first, this is, this is where we should all be headed, right? If we're, if we're the younger men, then this isn't something that we look at and say, okay, when I'm an older man, I'll strive for this. This is something that we're building our lives towards. Uh, the second reason I think I wanted to teach this is because I, I love the mature and godly and focused and loving and strong older men of this church. Uh, and I wanna paint a picture of who you are, according to Paul, and what you mean to all of us. And I think third, and this is the big reason for me, I I believe that men like this are what the world needs so badly today. Uh, Zach referred to it last night. You've all heard the term in our modern times, toxic masculinity. And uh, I think I understand the term. I think I even sympathize a little bit with the phrase. There are terrible men who troll the earth. And in their wake is destruction. Uh, There's hurt women, there's broken families, there's confused generations, warring nations. These guys damage everything and everyone around them. And like nuclear waste, they are toxic. So I, I think I understand the sentiment. But the term, to me, has in many minds been reversed. For a lot of people now, Masculinity itself is the thing that is toxic. And my proposition is that the masculinity the Bible describes that we're reading about right here in this verse, the mature manhood that Paul elevates, the kind of guy that's described here in Titus 2, verse 2, he's like a tonic that brings healing to this world, healing to families, healing to churches, healing to Society, so that's why I'm calling this message "tonic uh, masculinity." It's uh, there's a version of masculinity that is good for our world. Okay, so so how does Paul describe it? What does Paul say about this older man? All right, the first attribute, and we're just going to pick them apart one by one. uh, That Paul used to describe tonic masculinity is that older men are sober-minded. Sober-minded. It's worth thinking about other translations. Others translate this as temperance or as sobriety. Now, I gotta mention this, the first application of what Paul's saying here is that the older men in the church, the godly older men in the church, they should be, at the very least, this is kind of the bare minimum, physically sober men, okay? Uh, And I think that when Paul mentions this, This is one of the temptations that comes in the latter third of life. If you really think about it, for a lot of guys in their last third of life, it it can be hard for plenty of people, but for many men, the last third of life, a lot of the heavy lifting of life has already been done. Uh, The kids, perhaps, if you've had them, have already been raised. They're out of the house. Uh, Perhaps the house, uh, the mortgage is paid off. Uh, You're perhaps even at that stage of life making more money than you've ever made at any other time in your life. The income is solid, uh, the career is built. And on top of that can grow this temptation to become jaded about the world as it is. You've seen a lot and you can tend to be discouraged by everything that you've seen. Optimism can become harder to gain the older you get. Uh, But the godly man in Christ does not decide that he's put in enough work in the past and now it's time to kick up his feet and drink a little bit more. Uh, He might enjoy a glass of wine, but he's not going to allow glasses of wine to fog his mind. He's going to stay frosty, so to speak. He's going to stay mentally sharp for the very real battle that he is still engaged in, that is not over with. And this physical sobriety that he's going to have in his life, it's going to be emblematic of his whole life. Uh, Everything about the older man who's godly is sober. In other words, he's already learned what is godly and what isn't godly. He's tested the elements, so to speak. He's learned what is healthy and what isn't healthy. He's learned the destructive nature of the passing pleasures of sin. He's weighed the cost of self-indulgence and he's determined that the price is way too high. The payout is not worth it. So the godly man, the godly older man, he avoids excess and extravagance. He won't let himself be deluded or intoxicated by anything in life. In other words, this guy is serious about God. He's serious about God's kingdom. He's serious about the potency of the gospel. He knows that he's got to, like Caleb and Joshua and Moses that I talked about, fight for holiness until the day that he dies. In other words, this older godly man doesn't let his church attendance slip in those days older years, but instead presses into his relationship with the body of Christ and God's people. He might be finished raising biological sons and daughters, but this older godly man uses his time to help raise up the next generation of God's sons and God's daughters. And the thing I want to encourage those of you who are in this season of life in today, is I want to say don't slip. Be sober-minded. Maybe you can let David's life from the Old Testament serve as a cautionary tale for you. When David reached into his middle years after a period of success, he'd become the king. He'd already slain Goliath. He was now ruling and reigning over all of Israel. Things were going well. There came a season where he began to drift from the mission that God had given to him. He was not sober-minded, and it cost him dearly Notice what it says in the Bible. It says in 2 Samuel 11, verse one, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabath, but David remained in Jerusalem. Previously, David would go out to war with his men, Previously, David would go and engage in the fight for God's people, but here he decided to take a season of war off and remain in Jerusalem, and because he didn't go out to war, because he stopped sober-mindedly pressing into God's battlefield, David found himself with free time in the palace of Jerusalem, and one day... He observed from the rooftop a beautiful, young, and married woman of one of his chief soldiers bathing on another rooftop. He called for her. He slept with her, and she became pregnant, and this led David to cover up his own sin by placing her husband on the front lines alone, left to die, the ultimate betrayal of his brother-in-arms. But this sin could have been avoided if David had just stayed engaged in the fight that God had put in front of him. And I think especially in our older years, we have to press in because we likely, at that time of our lives, have more time on our hands, more money with which to do things. We have to engage in the war by mentoring and serving and working and growing. Now, while I was preparing this uh, teaching, I came across a small little booklet on my bookshelf uh, on the book of Titus by a pastor who was really popular in the 80s and 90s. And uh, at the height of his fruitfulness and at the beginning of the last third of his life, uh, he fell from grace through repeated sexual sin. And it was fascinating to read what he said about Titus two, verse two. He said, sometimes life's worst decisions are made after the kids are grown and gone. Sometimes middle age prevents us from seeing the life ahead and seeing that our greatest service for the Lord often occurs during this period of a person's life. It's not a time to go to sleep spiritually. We can know it just as he did, but we must practice it. Let's press in to the Lord. Amen brothers. Amen. There's a famous and legendary marathon coach who's named Hal Higdon. He's written all these books. If you ever want to run a marathon, get one of his books and he'll teach you exactly how to do it, how to build up to it. But he said in a, about running a marathon, he said, focus hardest when it counts most. If you find it difficult to concentrate during the full 26 miles of a marathon, he said, save your focus for the miles when you need it the most, the second half. And I thought that's great advice for runners, but I think it's better advice for us as Christian men. You know, let's focus in the second half of our lives. Let's knuckle down in this race. Don't slip, let's be sober-minded. It was sober-mindedness that enabled Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem. It was sober-mindedness that that enabled Luke to go interview everyone he needed to so that he could write the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. It was sober-mindedness that enabled Aquila to have an incredible marriage to Priscilla in the Bible, produce a business that blessed the church and disciple Apollos into maturity. Sober-minded men get the job done. And Jesus, of course, was sober-minded. This doesn't mean that Jesus was hard to be around. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about what it means to be sober-minded. Like, that guy's sober-minded, and he is no fun at all. No, there were rumors about Jesus that he was a glutton and a (laughs) wine-bibber. That means that he was a foodie, and uh, he could differentiate between white and red. (laughs) He... They thought he was a party, party animal, he wasn't, but it's a, he had so much joy that he was great to be around. But he was also beautifully sober-minded. He refused a mind-numbing concoction when he was on the cross. He wanted to feel the full brunt of crucifixion's pain. He refused to bow down to Satan as a quick way to gain the kingdoms of this world. He stayed clear-minded. He never lost focus. He never got distracted. Jesus pressed in, and let's walk with him so that his spirit can fuel us in the same way. Okay, the second attribute, though, that Paul mentions that he uses to describe tonic masculinity is that godly men are, what does he say there in verse 2? Dignified, dignified. Other translations render this word uh, as worthy of respect, Uh, venerable, sensible, and serious. You can see that there's an overlap between some of these words. Uh, What this means is that the godly older man, he is a substantive person. There's a weight to his life. He's the right kind of serious. He's not gloomy, he's not dour, he's not self-consumed, but he's real, and he's unnerved, and he's focused. He's worthy of respect from other people. And he treats other people well. He's not too comfortable or casual with the opposite sex. He speaks well of the younger generations. He stays out of the gutter because he's a man of honor. Uh, His life, in other words, is not trivial. It's not frivolous. His life is not superficial in any way. He's not vulgar, he takes immorality seriously. He craves holiness, he's dignified. This man is impressive, he's worthy of respect. The thing is, is that older men like this, they've learned a lot about the Lord as the years have gone by. They've learned a lot about themselves and they've learned a lot about life. They know that God is faithful, so they don't panic and they don't fret like they did when they were younger. They're confident in God. They they know that God is good. So even when they go through the gnarliest of trials, they believe that God is going to redeem them for his good and beautiful purposes. They know that God is love, so they're secure in their relationship with him as sons of God, and they know that God is holy, so they avoid anything that would pain his heart while pursuing ever-expanding levels of personal holiness. These guys have let the prayer for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done invade every aspect of their lives. In other words, the kingdoms of this world, even their own kingdoms, don't matter to them anymore. That's not what motivates them like they used to. The dignified man is concerned with the unseen kingdom of God. This man finds the phrase in Psalm 1 that the blessed man will bear fruit in his season and whatever he does will prosper, and he craves that season. I want that fruit. I want people to consume and be blessed by my life. This man abides in Jesus every single day of his life, not as a way to earn God's favor or to score points with God, and not as a paranoid lucky charm to try to get God to do some good things in his life. I read two chapters of the Bible today, God, so maybe you could hook me up a little bit today uh, and do something nice for me. No, this man has learned that abiding in Jesus is what leads to fruitfulness. And he wants fruit so bad that he is not going to skip out on that part of his life. He abides in Christ. This man, his heroes aren't actors who live in luxury or leaders with great power. He's not distracted by shiny objects or beautiful women or thrones of power. His heroes, when he watches movies, aren't the Godfather or Tony Stark or John Wick. (laughs) Instead, he resonates with men like the Apostle John, who they said, in his old age, had to be drugged up in front of the church just to say to everyone, brothers, love one another. The dignified man hears of guys like John Wesley, founder of the Methodists, who when he was 86 years old, bemoaned that he was sleeping in nowadays all the way until 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) And that he could no longer study and write and preach the Bible for 15 hours in a day like he used to. The dignified man looks at men like that and says, I respect that, I love that. The dignified man, his heroes keep their marriage vows, serve their wives, through all sorts of illnesses lay down their lives for others the dignified man is drawn to the story of joseph in the old testament whose branches it says in genesis 49 verse 22 ran over the wall so that other people coming by could partake of his life blessed by his presence The dignified older man does not have a feeling of immortality or invincibility like he might have when he was younger. He's seen too much. He's buried people that he loves. He's seen terrible things. He's seen wayward children. He's watched churches split. He's experienced unwanted illnesses, surprising divorces, failed businesses. This man knows his way around a hospital because he's been forced to do ministry and engage with his people there over the years. He's seen betrayal, he's seen death, he's seen decay. He's seen presidents and their promises come and go. Life has sobered him, so he has decided to spend his life well. He no longer believes that human effort and human plans can produce the utopia that we long for. He doesn't think that way anymore, but he's also not hopeless. His eyes are on God and his kingdom. He believes the gospel. He longs for Christ's return, and he is dignified about it. I believe that the dignified man looks into the word and loves the way that Jesus led his life in a dignified way. Jesus was always focused on the cross. The Bible says that his face was set like a rock to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die for us. And when Jesus spoke, people said that no one spoke like him. He had an incomparable confidence. He had clarity, he had authority when he talked. His life, in other words, and his words had weight. He was father-focused and people-oriented. And he lived a life that counted. He was dignified. The third attribute, though, that Paul used to describe tonic masculinity is that older godly men, he says, are self-controlled. Self-controlled. Other translations render this word as sensible or using good judgment or prudent or wise. Uh, It's a word that alludes to a self-mastery. Uh, Not not perfectly, not not that these men don't have sin uh, or don't succumb to temptation from time to time, but generally they have a self-mastery over themselves. Now this self-control to Paul is like a really key term. Uh, Every single person in his grid, he wanted them to get self-control. If you go on to read of the older women, the younger women and the younger men, Uh, Self-control was included for all of them. In fact, for the younger men, it was like the one thing. Tell the younger men to just get self-control. That's the one thing they need to focus on. (laughs) Okay, but what is self-control? What is self-control? Here's one definition. Obedience has to do with actions, but self-control has to do with emotions and how we deal with them. Do our emotions control us? Or do we control our emotions? Okay, that, that's, a, that's a good definition. About, it's about having mastery over the emotions. They're there, but they're not going to drive me. I'll, I'll utilize them and use them and process them well, but they're not going to drive me. I'm not gonna succumb to all of my emotions. I'm gonna have control over them. Now, I lifted that definition of self-control from a parenting book in a chapter about how to raise toddlers, that's what toddlers need is self-control. And that's what an old man needs as well to have self-control. We have to all learn self-mastery, self-rule, and self-discipline. The the word that Paul used for self-discipline, it derives from a combination of the word for save and the word for mind. So this man's mind has been saved. Uh, He He filters life through a new grid. Uh, He knows who he is in Christ. He's saved. He's new. He's redeemed. He's born again. He's a new creature. He's filled with the Spirit. He's under the new covenant, and he's able to live in the resurrection power of Christ. That's how he sees himself. Uh, He knows that he's been saved from the old, unregenerate, deathly life, far from God, under the law, lived in his own strength. He's saved. And as he abides in Jesus, he can be self-controlled. And what a weapon self-control is for this man. Self-control is powerful. Uh, Dallas Willard said it like this. He said, self-control is the steady capacity to direct yourself, to accomplish what you have chosen and decided to do and be, even though you don't feel like it. Self-control means that you, with a steady hand, do what you don't want to do or what you want not to when that is needed and do not do what you want to do, what you feel like doing when that is needed. Man, self-control. The self-controlled man knows that he needs Christ's power to have this self-control, so he spends time in the word and prayer every day with the Lord. The self-controlled man knows that frayed nerves and a tired body war against his self-control and his resolve. So the mature man fights to eat well and sleep well so that he's not put in a position of weakness. The self-controlled man knows that even God rested from his work. So the self-controlled man uses times of Sabbath as a way to protect, protect him from sin-inducing busyness. The self-controlled man knows that there will be times when he feels weak against temptation, so he develops and leverages godly friendships to help him stand against those temptations. The self-controlled man knows that he will lose some battles with the flesh, so he practices honesty with all the right people as a way to cast disinfecting light on the bacteria of sin. The older man with self-control is the man I think that we all want to be. He's not the toxic man that many people worry about or have been damaged by. Instead, he treats women with the utmost respect. He spends his money with wisdom and avoids frivolity. He uses his experience and wisdom and power to help raise up and develop and bless other people. The self-controlled man looks at Jesus and sees how he always did that which pleased the Father. When he was reviled, Jesus ruled his spirit and did not revile in return. When he was beaten, Jesus mastered himself and submitted to the cross. Maybe to think about what self-control is, we could compare two Old Testament figures. Take first Joseph. From the pages of Genesis, I talked about him a little bit already. But when Joseph was just a young man, he was sold into slavery by his older brothers. A man named Potiphar in Egypt purchased his services, and Joseph served well in Potiphar's house. So much so that soon Potiphar committed everything into Joseph's care. Everything, that is, except his wife. Uh, But his wife did not like that arrangement. She wanted to have Joseph for herself, and she tried to cast herself upon him every single day. One day, when no other servants were in the house, she grabbed him and said, lie with me. And Joseph wriggled free from his garment, ran from the house as a way to flee from sexual immorality. He had control over himself. On the other end of the spectrum, consider Solomon. Solomon started well. He received wisdom from God, and he used that God-given wisdom to build a beautiful empire, to bring Israel to the zenith of its glory. But then a moment came in his life where foreign women began to captivate his heart. He began to amass a harem that was unparalleled by the other kings of the earth. And as Solomon entered more deeply into his sin, he entered more deeply into the slew of despond. God disciplined his man. God dealt with his man. God took away the blessing that he could have been living and walking in because he had lost his self-control. His passions enslaved him to be men of self-control. Okay, but the last thing that Paul mentions here as I wrap it up today, this morning, one last attribute, a fourth attribute that Paul used to describe tonic masculinity is that older godly men are, he says in verse two, sound. And then he says that they're sound in three areas, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, this is a a great thing that he includes here because the other attributes that we've looked at, you could find uh, secular literature even praising some of those attributes. But here we get back to the core of what Christianity is. You know, there's the three pillar attributes of Christianity faith, and hope, and love, and all three of them are represented here. Uh, You have faith, you have love, and you have steadfastness. That's the only change in the faith, love, and hope list. Here he says faith, love, and steadfastness. I think what's happened is that the older man who's been in Christ, his hope has developed into an endurance. He is so confident in God's kingdom coming that he is now able to, with steadfastness, run the race that's in front of him. The idea here is that the godly man has fully entered into and embraced the pillar attributes of Christianity. He's strong in the faith, that means that he understands the Bible, he's mature in the truth of scripture. This older godly man doesn't have strange, weird, doctrinal convictions, he is sound. But he's also strong in love. He doesn't just know the Bible really well, he's not just really mature in the things of the faith, but he loves people. He's adopted a lifestyle that is completely others-centered. He's spending himself on others. He's not spending his time completely on himself and his hobbies and the golf course, but he wants to go to his grave loving other people. And he is strong in steadfastness, Paul says. That means that he's not thrown in the towel, but he's pressing with hope into what God is doing here on earth. He prays Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he's working hard for that to occur. He's not just sitting in his living room watching the news, bemoaning what's happening in the world today. Instead, he's working hard to bring Jesus to people's lives right where they are. He believes wholeheartedly in the power of the gospel. He would agree with Paul, who, even though Paul knew of the dark depravity of man like none of us, I think, know it, he said, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. It can pierce through the darkest of darkness. All right, so he's sound. Okay, so I just want to wrap up today just taking a minute to share my heart about the type of man that Paul described here in this verse, The, the old man who is Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. All right, this is a a valuable person. This is a valuable person. If you're a man uh, in your late 50s and beyond, and if you are these things, in other words, you're clear-minded about the Lord, you're serious about the right things, you've gained self-mastery over your life, you're solid about the faith, you're loving people well, and you're working steadfastly to make disciples, if that describes you today, all the rest of us say thank you, thank you. Thank you for being that kind of man. Thank you for being that kind of person. Uh, We have all had older men in our lives who have disappointed us and failed us and hurt us and have given up on us. And for you to be that kind of man, we're so thankful for your life. You are a pillar for all of us to to lean on. And one day we wanna be like you. You're a vision for us to acquire. You're, You're showing us through your life where we should be going tomorrow, and you're a blessing to our church, and you're a blessing to our community. You're the version of masculinity that our world needs right now. And my prayer is that you would take care, if you're this man I'm describing, my prayer is that you would spend your life taking care of pockets of believers here at this church. Uh, Our pastoral team has leaned into organizing our church into smaller groups so that people like you can step into helping us care for God's flock. There are future life groups, I believe, filled with people at various stages of their sanctification process for you to take care of and serve. There are future growth groups of men who are young and old, for you, if you're this man, to start. And there are younger men for you to counsel, for you to listen to, for you to pray for, for you to take under your wing and mentor. And in your sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled way, what I'm asking you to do is to bless God's people. If you're this man, bless the rest of us, uh, because we need you.